0: Welcome to the Discipleship Unplugged podcast. I'm your host, Darren Middleton, I'm the teaching elder at North Geelong Presbyterian. This is season one and episode eight, and today we're going to begin to explore the Reformed understanding of the Davidic covenant. In episode two, we offer the definition of God's covenant with us as a bonding blood sovereignly administered. Then in episode three, we consider the covenant of redemption, and, and we said that, that all that was purpose in the eternal covenant, that is, outside of history and time, that it must come to pass in history and time, and it, it works its way out in all the historical covenants that follow. In Episodes 4 and 5, we looked at the covenant of creation and the covenant of preservation, noting that they're both universal or creational covenants. Episode six, we said that the covenant of promise uh, that is with Abraham was a particular covenant made with Abraham and his seed. And then the last episode, we saw how the covenant of law expands and actually fulfills the promises made to Abraham, even If much of the Mosaic law was temporary, in a sense scaffolding, that was always meant to be taken down. And so today, episode 8, we'll we'll look at the covenant that God made with David, or what is often called the Davidic covenant. And what you'll find is that it further develops the Abrahamic promise of kingdom, uh, rest, and of course blessing and that ultimately what it does is it points us to David's greater son. Now, when it comes to the Davidic covenant, the the pivotal text is found in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, God has promised to David, King David that is, that, that he will have a great name, that he would have rest from all his enemies, and then he also tells him how he's going to do that by building a house or a, or a kingdom for David. Now, by way of context, uh, David has just defeated the Philistines, Israel's enemy, and he's now returned to Jerusalem with the Ark. This is where David reigns as king. Now, 2 Samuel 7.1 starts with a, a summary statement. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord gave him rest from all his surrounding enemies, so so here is God's people, and they're in God's place, and they're under God's king, therefore God's rule. And now they have rest from all their enemies. And so David calls for Nathan the prophet and says, You know, I dwell in a house of Cedar, but The ark of God dwells in a tent. And so he explains to the prophet that it's his intention to build a permanent home for God, a a temple. Uh, Nathan initially responds by saying, Great idea. Uh, Go do all that is in your heart. Over that night, the Lord speaks to Nathan and tells him to speak to David, saying that, that ever since the Exodus, when he redeemed Israel, that, that Yahweh had dwelt in a tent. And he says, have I ever asked you for a house of cedar? Instead, whenever I've led you, have, have you not prospered? Have I not defeated and defended you from all your enemies? And then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 9, he says, I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. In verses 10 to 11, he then promises them rest, that is Israel, through their king, David, and would have peace in all the land from all their enemies. And then that the Lord will make for David a great house. Verse 12, God promises to establish the kingdom of David's seed. And more than that, he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father's I will raise up for you or uh, raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall be a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and that I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son and so here is David getting this promise that, that, yes, you will die, but I will raise up your offspring. And from that offspring that comes from your body will I establish my kingdom. And it's, it's this king who will build a house for my name and will establish the throne forever. And so he assures David of both his steadfast covenant love And the promise of a kingdom that will never pass away. Verse 16 says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. David responds to the covenant promise in prayer. He says, You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And so even at this stage, David seems to understand that this covenant would would entail blessings that would come to the nations, to mankind. Remember, this is the nations that are promised through Abraham that will be blessed. And while the Hebrew word here for for covenant, berit, is is not theirs, it's absent, it's it's very clear from 2 Samuel uh, 23 verse 5, Uh, where David said, For does not my house stand so with God, for he has made with me an everlasting covenant. David understood that was what was going on. This was a covenant made with him, an everlasting covenant. Psalm 89, verse 3 and 4, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And it's also clear that this uh, Davidic covenant is actually an unfolding of the Abrahamic promises that were made in Genesis chapter 17, verse 6, when he said, I'll make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. More than that, the Abrahamic promise of blessings to the nation comes through the Davidic covenant. However, in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 4, there is always an understanding of conditionality. For it says, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their hearts and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. That is, the blessings of the covenant are tethered to the king. Of David's sons was required obedience. And if they were kings that, that love justice and mercy like God, then the shalom of the kingdom would be theirs. And the people of the kingdom would enjoy rest and blessings. You see, the kings are mediators. They are supposed to reflect God and his rule. Deuteronomy 10 verse 18 reminds us that God executes justice. The Hebrew there is mishpah, uh, he, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner and gives him food and clothing. Unsurprisingly, then, he expects the same from his people. Deuteronomy 24, verse 17 says, You shall not perverse justice, again, mishpah, due to the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow, and all God's people shall say, Amen. Again in Deuteronomy 27, verse 19, God's concern for justice is clear when we read, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. So Isaiah chapter 7, verse 9 to 10 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgment, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let no one devise evil against another in your heart. David understood this. 2 Samuel uh, chapter 8 verse 15 says that David administered justice and equity to all his people. Even his son Solomon started well. 1 Kings uh, chapter 3 verse 28 says that everyone under everyone uh, stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do Justice. You see, the job of a king and a theocracy is to keep covenant with God by executing God's law in justice and righteousness. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 9, reminds Solomon that God had made you king over them that you may execute justice and righteousness. You see, to do justice and righteousness as opposed to uh, feathering your own nest or building your own legacy or or gaining many wives or gaining much wealth. Rather, what the king of Israel was to do was to do justice and righteousness. And, and where there was justice and righteousness, there too, the shalom of God, the peace of God was also. Now, in the Bible, shalom means... Uh, Universal flourishing, wholeness, indeed delight, sort of like an enduring Sabbath of joy and, and well-being. It's a picture in a sense of, of human flourishing. And so the biblical witness is that when the king executed justice and righteousness, the result for Israel, for the kingdom, would be shalom. And, and the people would flourish And so therefore the king's job was to keep covenant on behalf of God's people. King after king did not keep covenant, did not do justice, did not do righteousness, but rather actually led Israel into infidelity and idolatry and sin. And so Israel did not enjoy God's shalom. In fact, the story of the Old Testament is they don't enjoy rest in the land. Indeed, ultimately, they're exiled from the promised land. It's why in the Old Testament, the people of God, indeed the prophets of God, how they longed for the promised Messiah, that, that, that promised anointed king who would actually do justice and righteousness. And, 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 and as a result, the shalom of the kingdom would come. In fact, Isaiah speaks of this in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, shalom, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Or later, the prophet Isaiah in in chapter 42, verses 1 to 4 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. Because there is no peace, no peace. Shalom for the wicked Isaiah chapter verse uh, Isaiah 48 verse 22. And so in Luke when it's time to get to the um, the birth narratives in Luke chapter 1 verse 32 to 33 the angel said to Mary about the child Jesus, he will be great and he will be called the son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. It is, it is so evident in the New Testament that, that Luke understands that Jesus is the Christ. More than that, he is the one of whom the Davidic promise is actually fulfilled. He is the offspring, the seed of David. He is David's descendant who will rule forever on this promised kingdom, on this promised throne. And this kingdom if you remember when we first started this series was first promised in the eternal covenant it was a reward for christ's obedient as the suffering servant as the the second adam as david's greater son and that he would come as the fulfillment of the new covenant who through the cross would wear the crown and and by making atonement would would make the pathway to enthronement and that at last, at last through him, people could experience the shalom for the kingdom, that promise, blessing and, and rest that is now available to all God's people, to all those who look to Jesus the King. The Davidic kingship then is actually pivotal to our understanding of covenant theology. It speaks to the desire for rest and peace and that ultimately no king in Israel actually fulfills this hope. And that's why there is this longing, this hankering, why is this hope throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, of another king, of, of, of a second Adam to come, you know, David's greater son, and and that that when he comes, when this king finally arrives, that he will do justice and righteousness, fulfilling uh, God's covenant. That he would he would walk in obedience, that he would keep covenant with God on our behalf, just as the king was supposed to do in Israel. And because he keeps covenant, because he obeys, because he walks in obedience, because he keeps God's law, because he loves both his father in heaven and his neighbor as himself, because he does all these things. He then becomes this perfect lamb of God, uh, this great high priest who can go to a cross and though he is himself without sin, he, he becomes sin for us. The contrast in the Old Testament is that there are so many places uh, in the literature where it says that the kings of Israel made Israel sin. It doesn't mean it made Israel to commit sin, it just made them sin in God's eyes. because their mediator, the king, failed them. He did not keep covenant. He did not do justice and righteousness. And here is David's greater son. this is the offspring. To which 2 Samuel 7 speaks of. And he has come. But this king doesn't come with a crown. He comes humbly into our midst. And he's like this this second Adam who then obeys the Father in all things. And then the one who is without sin, he goes to the cross. And he he becomes sin for us. And he absorbs the Father's wrath at our transgressions, this King. And because this King does these things, that he is vindicated in the resurrection, and that he ascends to the right hand of the Father, where he sits on his throne, waiting for that day when that last trumpet will sound. And all the nations, if they were to look to him, would find shalom, would find peace, would find forgiveness. This is Psalm 2, kiss the Son, lest he be angry with you. And Psalm 127-17 echoes this Abrahamic promise which is actually fulfilled in Jesus when it says, May his name endure forever, his his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All the nations call him blessed. This is Discipleship Unplugged. Blessings and grace to you. Until next time, goodbye.